Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has over a million listeners around the world. The Common Bridge is available on Substack.com and draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. Hello, this is Rich Helpy. I'm your host of The Common Bridge. Today, we're going to talk about insurance, and we've got an expert with us today, Mr. George Sinus. Now, this might be a little specific toward Michigan, but could have implications in other states. Let me tell you a little bit about what's going on. In May of 2019, the Senate Republicans in Michigan, presumably under pressure from the insurance industry, introduced Senate Bill 1 to provide meaningful rate relief to drivers. Okay, sounds pretty good, right? A year later, the House passed their version with House Bill 4397, despite threats from Governor Gretchen Whitmer that she would veto the bill. Now, why would the governor not want her constituents to benefit from this and then change her mind? Fast forward almost two years after the passing of the bill, and Michigan is all of a sudden a hotbed of controversy now that the full effects of the bill are being felt by Michigan's insured and, tragically, by the unfortunate victims of catastrophic car accidents both prior to and after the reform. What are the issues? Do they have national consequences? Do other states have similar laws, or are they considering them? And, of course, with us today to help us understand both the law and the current issues, George Sinus of the Sinus Dramas Law Firm of Lansing, Michigan. Mr. Sinus, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Our audience likes to know a little bit about our guests. So do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Where did you spend your early days? And what's been your academic preparation? And maybe a little thumbnail of your professional work. Sure. I uh, grew up in Lansing, Michigan. I went to the University of Michigan undergrad. And I went to law school at Wayne State. I came back to Lansing right after my law school days, and I joined a law firm that my father started 70 years ago. And, and I've been with that law firm ever since I got out of law school. And uh, I'm pleased and proud to say that my two sons also went to law school, and they joined the law firm about a decade ago and uh, are doing essentially the same kind of work that I'm doing, uh, specializing in the auto no-fault area, and they have gone on to uh, begin very impressive careers. Well, that's fantastic. I love hearing about multi-generational businesses, and it's a pleasure to be able to work with your sons, I would imagine. It sure is. What exactly is the scope of practice, and do you work on the defense side or the plaintiff side? And if there is such a thing, what's a, a typical case that your firm might handle? We work exclusively uh, representing seriously injured people, primarily injured in motor vehicular accidents, semi-truck accidents, motorcycle accidents, regular automobile accidents, etc. We also do other types of personal injury work, uh, such as premises liability uh, and, and certain other injury-producing situations. But the vast majority of what we do is in the auto area. And the no-fault law actually went into effect in 1973, which was right before I got out of law school. And when I passed the bar, 
there was absolutely no case law interpreting this new statute. So guys in my situation were starting uh, at, at ground zero of, of auto no-fall. And over the last uh, 40 years, this system, which was brand new, in 1973, has gone on to become one of the fastest growing areas of jurisprudence uh, in recent Michigan history. And if I understand this correctly, prior to the advent of no fault, if there was a car accident, that there would be some kind of court hearing to determine who was at fault in the accident, and therefore that at fault person would carry the liability for the damage to the vehicles and medical care and the like. Is that correct? That's essentially correct. And what you just described is a tort system. And the vast majority of the United States is on a tort system. And that means that the victim, the guy that gets hurt, can only recover medical expenses if the other guy caused the accident, if the other guy was at fault. If the victim caused the accident, or there was no uh, uh, intervening person that caused it, such as a deer running out in the middle of the road or hitting black ice and smashing into a tree. In those situations where there was no at-fault driver causing the event, the victim had no recourse. And, and they, the only way they were going to get their medical expenses paid is if they had health insurance. And if they didn't have health insurance, God help them. Uh, they really would be without the ability financial to uh, secure the necessary treatment. So the no-fault law went into effect and it wanted to correct that. It wanted to make sure that we created a reparation system where every victim, regardless of who caused the accident, would have certain guaranteed medical expense benefits and wage loss benefits so that they wouldn't have to depend upon the fortuities of a a tort-based system. And at the time Michigan passed its law, I I believe that there were approximately 16 states that had no fault. Um, That list has dwindled. I believe we're now down to 12 or 14. Uh, So no states have joined the no fault ranks. It is very important when you're talking about Michigan no fault to appreciate the fact that Michigan's system was by far the most comprehensive of any of the other. 13 states that had some version of no fault. In Michigan, we did what nobody else in the country did. And that is this, we adopted a system that provided guaranteed lifetime medical and rehabilitation expenses. That is what was in everybody's auto policy, lifetime coverage. And we were able to do that without spending a penny of tax dollars or government funding. It was all funded by ourselves through our auto insurance policies. That to me sounds like the essence of insurance. Everybody puts in a little bit for the few that might need to get a payout at some day. I know there are many cases, you know, the classic is a 17-year-old that gets T-boned or loses control of a car and hits a tree and becomes a quadriplegic and needs lifetime care. And capping those benefits would be very, very cruel. We had hockey players of Vladimir Konstantinov injured and permanently disabled in a car accident. And they were getting great care. Why did that needed to be changed? Well, the problem was the premiums. They kept going up 
and up and up. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that. And we could talk for days. But the premium kept going up and up and up. And politically, this became a real hot potato. And over the last 20 years, there were a number of proposals made to change no fault. And two of them involved ballot propositions, 1992, 1994, where legislation similar to the legislation that was just passed was resoundingly defeated by Michigan voters at the poll by margins of uh, uh, 60 to 40. And, and Michigan voters didn't want to lose their lifetime medical. But nevertheless, the premiums kept going up and up and up. And the mayor of Detroit got very much involved in this. Uh, there were a ton of uninsured drivers in the Detroit area and other metropolitan areas around the state. And that created the problem that you just identified. If you have fewer people paying into the system, then that means the rest of us that are in the system paying and have to pay more to make up for the folks that can't afford to be in it and pay. And so long story short, the premium drove the policy. And that's unfortunate when that happens. The premium dro drove the policy. and the first thing they did with this new law is they took away the guaranteed lifetime medical. Now you had to buy it. Your policy no longer automatically contained it. Rather, you, you had choices. You could buy lifetime medical. You could buy $500,000 of medical expense. You could buy two fifty. dollars If you were Medicaid eligible, you could buy as low as $50,000. And, you know, the, the, the unfortunate thing is that folks who don't have the economic wherewithal uh, ended up having to choose something less than the lifetime medical. And then, God forbid, if there's a catastrophic accident like the one you just described, a young kid becomes a quadriplegic, there's just not enough coverage. There's not enough coverage, and there's a wasted life. And when they don't have enough coverage, like, look, $250,000 for a victim that has become a quadriplegic, can't get out of bed, needs rehab, needs to be fed and, you know, bathed in basic bodily functions and such. You're going to blow through that in a year, maybe, if, if it lasts that long, uh, for something that may go on for 50 years. What what are citizens supposed to do? Well, here's the problem with, the, with what you just identified. Yeah, you're going to blow through that coverage. So who's going to pick up the metal? Well, in many situations, it's going to be us, the taxpayers. Uh, if the person has to go on Medicaid, Medicaid's funded by tax dollars, right? If they have health insurance, health insurance will pick it up, but health insurance only pays a portion of what no-fault medical pays. So there's going to be a diminution in the extent of, of, of the coverage that's available. The other problem is, now, a lot of people don't understand this, Rich, but when you give somebody the choice to buy less than unlimited lifetime coverage, and that person, let's say they buy the 250 that you said, right? Mm -hmm. And they rack up $5 million in medical expenses. Who's responsible for that $5 million in addition to the sources that I've just described? Here's the answer. If there's an at-fault driver, the at-fault driver now bears the liability for paying for the excess medical expense incurred by the victim. That means every single one of us, you and me, we have liability exposure under this new law that we never had under the old law because under the old law, everybody got their medical pay. Everybody, right? So there was no excess to sue about. 
So what this means is this. If you, but for the grace of God, leave your work today, run a red light unintentionally, and cripple some little kid, and that kid racks up three, four million dollars in medical expenses, but only bought 250. You, my friend, are holding the bag for the rest. And that means all of us better load up and buy as much liability insurance as we can buy because you just never know. And this is a problem that just it never exists. What problem were these changes trying to address? It had to be something more than the cost of car insurance premiums. Essentially, it was the premium that was the big driver. People just couldn't afford to pay these premiums. Michigan was the highest or the second highest premium paying state in the country. And as an aside, people don't appreciate the fact that it wasn't PIP. PIP is the medical expense word for no fault. That was the big premium driver. It's collision coverage. Collision and comprehensive, which has nothing to do whatsoever with no fault, right? Let me make sure I understand that. What you're telling me is this long-term coverage was gutted, but it really didn't benefit the economics of the insurance industry because more of their costs are in the collision side of things? The biggest part of the premium was collision and comprehensive. The secondary premium drivers were no-fault medical and no-fault liability. Mm -hmm. So right off the bat, when you talk about people paying an average of $5,000 for insurance coverage, that wasn't $5,000 for the, the, the lifetime medical. That was $5,000 for all those other coverages, half of which had nothing to do with the Michigan auto no-fall law. And the other reason that drove this was this concept, well, there's a lot of fraud in the system. There are a lot of providers that charge too much. There are certain families that commit fraudulent uh, acts in the processing of, of claims. But if you stop and think for a minute, imagine at in, in the U.S. Congress, a proposal gets floated that we have to reduce Medicare benefits because there are doctors who engage in fraud. How far do you think that can be? Oh, that's what we hear all the time when the unrealistic budget proposal goes forward. It's we're going to get there by eliminating waste and fraud. It's a empty promise. The governor says that drivers are going to get $400 rebates. And is it basically just cancellation of the long-term coverage? So if you will indulge a personal opinion, I don't know Please. if uh, you like to hear those. Yeah, of course. We're, we, this is your forum. Our, our listeners, viewers, and readers love to hear from people that are actually doing things that can explain them. They're here because they want the firsthand information. In recent weeks, we've had a gentleman on from Australia telling, hey, here's what happened when I went into quarantine. Here's what I saw on the grocery store shelves. It's hard to get that kind of reporting anyplace else. So please let it rip. So as having spent my entire professional legal career in no fault, uh, this, this is my sincere belief here. The $400 rebate was a reaction to the problem, the main problem that we haven't even talked about yet. And here's the two big problems with this bill. In addition to taking away the guaranteed lifetime, it did two other things. It adopted fee schedules, fee schedules that are hooked into the Medicare fee schedule. 
and for traditional medical services, the fee schedule is roughly 200% of what's payable by Medicare. But if the service is not payable by Medicare, and there are many services, particularly those that are required by severely brain injured people and spinal cord injured people after they get out of the hospital, that are not Medicare compensable. The fee schedule for those services is 55% of what the medical provider charged for that service back on January 1, 2019. Let me get this straight. Not only is this denying coverage, it says, well, we're going to tie into the Medicare schedule. So if a service, let's say some advanced type of speech therapy is not on the Medicare schedule, you don't get that even though that Medicare recipient might be getting that through their supplemental plan. No, they wouldn't be getting it through the supplemental plan because it, it's not Medicare compensable. So this new no-fault law says, well, Medicare doesn't pay it. So the no-fault insurers are only going to have to pay 55% of what the provider was charging when the statute went into effect. Now, how many businesses are you aware of that can sustain a 45% revenue loss? Well, it's a trick that's been used on the healthcare industry for a long time, and, and it's designed to stifle utilization and bring down global budgets at cost of a lesser quality of care. So what I think we're getting around to, if you look at this and diagram it, the cost of lower premiums is lesser care and less available care because no one's going to enter the market to provide the care if they're not going to get paid for their services. Exactly. What's a person to do? God forbid you there's a again the a teenager who's becomes a quadriplegic, let's say a middle income family, okay, that can't sustain lifetime five to eight million dollars worth. What are they supposed to do? Go bankrupt and get on Medicaid? This is the problem. And and some of these people can no longer be cared for at home. As a matter of fact, I know a woman that I represented years ago, because of the fee cuts, the nursing agency no longer could come in her home. And she ended up in a nursing. And, and this is going on with a, a number of patients. They're getting booted out of their care uh, world. And there was a study that was uh, done, it was commissioned by the Brain Injury Association of Michigan, and it was performed by the Michigan Public Health Institute, MPH, which is a pretty credible outfit. And this was uh, data that was reported uh, last fall. And the numbers are, are shocking. The, and, and you can obtain this directly from the Brain Injury Association. But of the organizations that were providing services to these brain injured folks, rendering services that were not Medicare compensable and therefore subject to the 55% fee slash. 21 businesses closed. 21. That was a job loss of 3,000 jobs. 1,500 patients had to be kicked out of those programs because the business no longer could afford to provide the service. So let me make sure I play that back from a human standpoint, George. You're a family member and you're caring for somebody that has been severely injured and they're at home and they see their family and you know maybe they're watching television with you at night, but they're participating to the extent they can in family life and they're there in a loving environment and they have support coming in 
from specialists as needed. Well, now due to these changes, those companies aren't there to provide that support. So that deeply injured individual has to be moved out of their home into a facility away from their family. Did I hear that right? Because that just... The conclusion that you heard is correct, but you have to then ask why. Because of the second shoe that fell. The first shoe was the 55% fee schedule that makes it impossible for these agencies to send in. Now, what about the families? Many families chose to save the insurance company a little money and provide attendant care to their loved ones. And some of these people require, many require 24-7 attendant. The second shoe that fell is the family-provided attendant care rate reduction. Under the old law, if a physician or another health professional confirmed that the patient needed 24-7 attendant care, the insurer had to pay. Under the new bill, the insurer only has to pay an average of eight hours a day. Eight hours a day for family or friend provided attending care, okay? So the family's only gonna get paid for eight hours. What about the other 16? Well, you can't pick up the phone and call the agency because they're not gonna send anybody in because they can't afford to provide the service at a 55% fee. And so you have a loss of care. Do you know offhand how old the typical legislator is in the state house? They're all younger than me, though. I feel your pain. That's most of the population. But, yeah. but when I see these kinds of things happen, I often muse to myself, and this is, by the way, speculation, so I'm not asking my readers, listeners, or viewers to accept this as any kind of research at all, but term limits means that we've got a lot of young people that are serving. They, they don't build up any institutional knowledge and you know maybe don't understand the implications. There's this very complex subject matter that you've been working on for 50 years that you're building up this intricate understanding. How does this go forward? Is there a policy solution? And is anybody listening? Well, one of the most important things that's going on to be responsive to your question, is the raging debate over retroactive application of these draconian benefit cuts. And the insurance industry looks at the bill, this 80-page bill, and they contend that the way it's worded allows them to retroactively apply these benefit cuts to people who bought policies years ago and who were injured years ago. And the legislature did not, in this bill, clearly state that it was to be retroactively applied. And so I'm actually lead counsel on a case that's pending before the Court of Appeals right now where that issue is going to be addressed. Should this be given retroactive application? And there, is, there was an amicus brief filed in that case by two legislators, Representative Grixey and the late Representative Schroeder, Democrat, Republican. And they urged the court to not find that this is retroactive. And attached to it was a petition signed by 73 legislators who voted on this, Republican and Democrat, who said that was never our intention. Now, unfortunately, this administration, through its Department of Insurance, 
files an amicus brief in response in the Court of Appeals saying, oh, yeah, it's okay to apply this web track. I want to make sure I hear that clearly. The insurance company said, yeah, we've got a person that's been on long-term care for 10, 15 years, and we've been paying for certain services at a certain rate. Right. Now we're going to use this new law, our interpretation of it, to cut both the services and the rate that we're paying for those services. Correct. That there was a court case challenging that. 73 legislators wrote in support of the position that, no, you can't do this retroactively. It's so that, you know, guess people can plan to go forward based on what's there or, hey, I already bought the policy, so I should be covered. But the Whitmer administration sided with the insurance industry? Through the Department of Insurance. And to me, that's just, uh, it's astonishing. Now, is that where that $400 per driver rebate came from? Well, again, if you want my opinion, a $400 rebate, a once-in-a-lifetime rebate, was a political smokescreen. It was announced to divert the public's attention from this these horrible injustices that, that we are talking about now. And, and rather than doing the right thing, doing the right thing, which is to publicly say, you know, we had every good intention, and some of this law is, is, is good, but we made a mistake, and we've got to go in, and we've got to fix the things that are not working right. And that, my friend, is the gold standard for good governance. But what do we got? We got Republican leadership in the Senate, Republican leadership in the House that won't move any remedial legislation. We got the governor. Uh, using her uh, insurance bureau to uh, argue against the horrible injustice of retroactive application. And we're talking about 400 bucks as if that's going to fix the awful thing. And by the way, you might want to look into something on March 2nd, which was what, two days ago? Mm -hmm. It was a memorial service. And I'm holding the program here in my hand in Lansing. I didn't attend in honor of five people who had died because of these limitations and reductions on care. That's what this service was all about. And look, I know many Michiganders, Michiganians, you pick your term. There's three of us here uh, developing this broadcast today. And from everyone that I know through all walks of life, if you said, would you rather have $400 in your pocket one time, or would you rather see your fellow citizens cared for when they befall tragedy? I don't know of anybody that would say, yeah, I'll take the 400 bucks. Right. George, I, I don't know how often you listen to this program on the Common Bridge, but our central theme is that the people we elect are becoming less and less responsive to, the, to us, the people they serve. The Democrats aren't responsive, the Republicans aren't responsive, and there's so little good journalism and reporting, most people don't have a fact set in order to make an informed decision. And everybody heard about the headline, the governor's gonna give everybody $400, and there wasn't really an equal voice saying, well, wait a minute, let me tell you what you bought with that $400. That's that's exactly right, and that was the intent. Let's talk about the 400 bucks that you healthy people are getting, but what about these poor folks these catastrophically injured victims, and there's 13,000 of them that are being, their care is being funded by the 
the Michigan Catastrophic Claims Association, from which this $400 rebate is coming. And I think it totals, I can't, $4 billion or something. Hey, wouldn't it have been a little smarter to take that $4 billion or whatever the total amount is that's funding the $400 rebate and to say, you know what, let's just leave that $4 billion in the MCC and, and let's use it to pay for some of the care that's not being reimbursed under this new law. And let's do that until we get the problem fixed. But all no, we didn't do that. That would have been good governing. It would have been a grand alternative and it would have been serving people. And, you know, when we talk about healthy citizens. We're all one accident or one illness away from being an unhealthy citizen. I know my personal experience, everything from birth injuries through uh, cardiac events, through falls that people have been injured or killed. And we've all had that experience. We're one second away from transitioning from a healthy to an unhealthy person. And that's, again, where insurance comes in. We're all supposed to put in some so that when tragedy befalls one of us, there's enough there to cover us, at least medically. That's right. And I tell you, Rich, nobody should think that the blame for this falls solely at the feet of Republicans or solely at the feet of a Democratic administration. This, my friend, is a bipartisan fate. Let me ask you this question, if if you know. We've seen many laws get passed at the federal level where the Congress excludes itself from the impact of the law. Do we have any of this kind of thing going on in the no. legislature of Michigan? Okay, not right. legislature of Michigan is uh, subject to this as well. That's right. And, and, and that really affords me uh, an opportunity to make an important point. I do not question the intentions or the motives of any politician that voted for this. I'm going to give everybody the benefit of the doubt that they were all well-intentioned and they wanted to do something to make insurance more affordable and they wanted to preserve care. But guess what? It didn't work out that way. So the most well-intentioned actions can end up not the way you planned for them to end up. And then you have to be responsible. You have to step up and say, okay, I wear the Democratic jersey. You wear the Republican jersey. We got people out there that are suffering. Thousands of families who've had their care situation completely pulled out from under them. We got to do something for these folks. I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that. And it is really distressing. And let me share with you the distress and, and let me push that into the future. So now we have term limits. So in, I believe it's six years time, there's a 100% turnover in the state house, which means that no institutional knowledge is retained about what went right, what went wrong. Let's just say that the right thing occurs and they reverse it. Six years from now, nobody remembers it because nobody's left. Right. And this is where I, I think that term limits is something I was in favor of. And now that I see it in practice, I realize it's really not helping because you know, the ultimate term limit is you've got to go back to the voters and ask to be put back in that seat again every two years. But And if somebody serves their constituency and they do it for 50 years, great. But th- this notion that um, we're going to have a lot of young, inexperienced people that are going to spend a short time in the legislature before looking for a maybe a Senate job or moving elsewhere in government, 
we're going to pay the price of this for a long time. And this is beyond the state of Michigan. It's beyond this issue. But it, this goes national to, to all 50 states and to the federal government. I totally agree with that. And there's no better example of the problems that creates than in auto no-fault, because auto no-fault is very complicated. And I remember in the early days when I would go to the legislature uh, to give testimony about portions of this bill, I was working with legislators, for example, like Mary Brown, who had been there for years and really understood the intricacies of this reparation system. And that can only come from experience. And, and if you're kicking people out of there after a few years, you're doing exactly what, you're, what you've described. You're cheating Michigan citizens out of the benefits of institutional knowledge that's necessary to enact intelligent laws, not this stuff. Exactly. George, we could go on for a long time like this, but maybe as we start to move to the end of our chat today, what didn't we cover today that perhaps we should have spent some time with? Well, I think that it is very important to appreciate one other implication of laws like this, and that is Big Brother stepping in and ripping up contracts that the private citizen paid good money to buy. And that's what is at the heart of this retroactivity thing. When all of these victims bought their policies, those policies were written in a way that didn't contain these fee schedules because they adopted the law that was in existence then and the law that was in existence then specifically prohibited fee schedules and it didn't countenance limitations on family provided identity. That's what was bought and the insurance company collected a premium for that. Now, with this retroactive application, those benefits that these people bought and paid for have been reduced. But what happened to the premium that they paid? You talk about windfalls. There's nothing in this statute that requires these insurers to rebate the extra premium that they collected to provide these benefits that are no longer payable. And if you're a conservative politician, it would seem to me that that would be most disturbing because I have a, a number of colleagues that, that express, uh, and I respect them for this, their, their conservative views. But the true conservative genuflex at the altar of the sanctity of the private contract and will not countenance Big Brother coming in and screwing around with private contracts, right? That's a foundational tenet. So, but what action or actions would you recommend that people take today? If you could say, look, if everybody did X or did Y, what would you recommend that the listeners and the viewers and the readers of the Common Bridge do? Number one, insist that there be no retroactive application of these fee cuts to people who bought policies and were injured before the law. Number two, insist that their legislators enact meaningful fee schedules that are financially survivable for the providers whose services are needed to restore life to these severely injured people. And a 55% fee schedule isn't even close to a financially survivable fee schedule. And number three, restore the sanctity of the family 
the family provided attendant care is one of the most critically important things to the total and complete rehabilitation of a catastrophically injured person. The family can provide care properly trained that is better than any other care. And why would, would we, as a government, denigrate that and make it compensable for a measly eight hours a day? That's wrongheaded. It's, it's intolerable. The family's important. You've heard today from an expert on the front lines, Mr. George Sinus, a attorney with deep experience in the no-fault industry. And if you think this is just isolated to Michigan, bear in mind, other states, other countries, other companies look and see what advantage they can get. So if even if you're not in the state of Michigan, understand what your legislation and your legislators are doing. Understand what's in the policies that you're buying and find out if those benefits are going to be protected. This has been a disturbing and informative session today. George, I hope that you'll come back as this resolve so that we can keep following the story. You've been a, a wonderful guest, and I thank you so much for devoting your time. It's been a very educational and enjoyable time having you on. It was my pleasure and honor to be here. Call me anytime. This is Rich Helpy with our guest, George Sinus, signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Please subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com where you can find more interviews, columns, podcasts, video, and other nonpartisan discussions to the problems of today. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. Please go to Substack.com and search for The Common Bridge and subscribe. All rights reserved.